A few weeks before his 80th birthday, I had the rare pleasure to speak by phone to the 15th director of the National Park Service, Robert Stanton. From his home in Maryland, Mr. Stanton shared with me a personal history of his career as a leading figure in the preservation of public land, as well as the enduring legacy of our heritage as a nation. Born in 1940, as a black American, Stanton was subjected to the racially focused prohibitions of the Jim Crow era that denied him access to the many national parks and monuments that he would grow up to manage. And though he and his family were restricted from the recreational spaces where white Americans were free to travel, Stanton was able at an early age to experience the wonders of nature. You know, I grew up in rural segregated Texas, and uh, we were, came from very meager means, so we did not vacation. I was in the cotton field or the, or the hay fields uh, during my young adulthood, but I was not a stranger, if you will, to the out of doors, you know, with bare feet running through the woods, fishing in the lakes, gravel pits, uh, taking a little dip in our birthday suits, you know, what have you, and watching out for the copperheads and the water moccasins. But uh, so, so out of doors was not a stranger to me. It was during his childhood that policies that had restricted black Americans from visiting national parks were slowly beginning to lift. Under the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, around the end of the Second World War, progressive shifts in the nation's attitude toward black Americans became a bit more favorable, despite the objections of many state legislators and private citizens. Just in terms of my exposure to, um, to the National Park Service and other land management agencies, and, and, and putting it in sort of a historical context, you recognize the courage on the part of uh, uh, Harold Icke, Secretary of the Interior under Roosevelt, uh, when he issued uh, his secretarial order in 1945, saying that uh, there would not be any discriminations in the, in the national parks. And as, as I understand, and, I, and I'm, I will produce my memoirs, I think to do a little bit more research in terms of what, what kind of uh, flack that he received. My understanding is that when he, when he made that decision that the proprietors of restaurants, uh, overnight accommodation surrounding the gateways to the park, they, they raised holy hell. You mean you're going to allow them colored folks to come in and eat and sleep where they want to in the park? It could be said that the first battle lines of the modern civil rights movement were drawn in our national parks. By order of Secretary of the Interior Harold Eckes in 1945, these public recreation areas were among the first sites to be desegregated nationwide. It was through the leadership and encouragement of social activists within the Roosevelt administration and then under President Harry S. Truman that Eckes ordered that the national parks be made open to everyone, regardless of race or ethnicity. But the thing that was bring to your attention, which, uh, which was not widely advertised, is that he had the counsel of two prominent, forceful, unrelenting black executives who were promoting the integration and full accessibility of not only to park service citizen program but throughout the breadth of the program of the interior the first one was robert 
Weaver, who became the first African-American to serve as a cabinet secretary. Hood, appointed by President Johnson. He was followed by William Trent, Jr. And it was William Trent, Jr. who uh, was really a strong advocate that here you have young men returning from World War II and they need to have uh, some way in which they could just sort of uh, relax themselves uh, coming from the war, even though we were coming back to places they were not permitted to in enter, such as cafes and restaurants, but still they should have an opportunity to enjoy some of the benefits of being an American citizen. Civil rights leaders during the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt through the 1940s became known as the Black Cabinet, or the Federal Council of Negro Affairs. The phrase was coined by Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune in 1936, and as a group that included Robert Weaver and William Trent Jr., they helped to guide the racial integration of the National Park Service. Trent uh, was a strong advocate, strong advisor, uh, working with Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, Eleanor Roosevelt and others, and Harold Ickes issued that uh, executive order in 1945. So we were still very much segregated, but if you got into a national park, <laughs> you, you could get your hair cut, you could camp, you go to the restaurant. It's important to understand that the National Park Service, like all branches of the federal government, including the U.S. military, had been racially segregated since it was formally created in 1916. It was only with the policy changes encouraged by the Black Cabinet in the 1940s that Black Americans were allowed to visit these public recreation areas, and it would take another 20 years before people of color were actively recruited and encouraged to become National Park Rangers. Robert Stanton was among the first. In his own words, this is his story. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Deutsche Project. What's truly remarkable about Robert Stanton's career with the National Park Service is that he stands as a constant through-line. His tenure spans not only the integration of the first modern black park rangers, but also the scope of U.S. history that includes the contributions of black Americans going all the way back to the beginning. Among his many achievements, Stanton was the first black superintendent of a national park since Charles Young commanded the Buffalo Soldiers at Sequoia in 1903. He then served as superintendent of the Virgin Islands National Parks, where Christopher Columbus is believed to have landed at what is now Salt River Bay National Historic Site. Not many of us realize that the pilot of the Santa Maria, the flagship of the voyage of Columbus, was a Spaniard of mixed Anglo and African descent by the name of Pedro Alonso Nino. From very early in his career, Robert Stanton was not only the purveyor of the many narratives from our collective history, he was also a trailblazer who bore witness to the events of the not-so-distant past, part of an emerging generation of students freed from the restrictions of legal segregation, a doctrine commonly known as separate but equal. Stanton was able to take advantage of the 1954 Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education to pursue a course of higher learning as a graduate of Houston-Tilliston University in his home state of Texas. 
As a federal employee, he forged a path of professional empowerment through the National Park Service that stands not only in our history, but also in the enduring memory of the man who lived it. So, so here we go from post-World War II with Herlikus. We go with uh, President Truman executive order. And then the veterans and others were saying, hey, you know, one of the pressing needs, one of the pressing needs, even under this doctrine of separate but equal, you know, our major concern, our primary concern is the educational opportunities for our young people. So there was a hell of a lot of energy and efforts spent. And let's, let, let's see whether or not the school district have the courage enough to live up to providing equal opportunities, even under the doctrine of separate but equal. So there was a major effort with the NAACP and others fighting for that that led to the Supreme Court decision in 1954. There was a beautiful Supreme Court decision that was reached unanimously, but integration did not come easily or equal opportunity in education. Texas did not, uh, in terms of a large-scale basis, integrated public schools until, what, 1965, 67. But then, then that was taking place during the Eisenhower administration, and some things were being acted upon, and some were sort of a passive. So then we elected a young president in 1960 who took office, 1961, and he appointed a young Secretary of the Interior who was in his second or third term as a congressman from Arizona by the name of Stuart Lee Udall. And Stuart Lee Udall, coming into the office, doing really the height of the so-called modern civil rights movement, because even in Austin, I remember I was president of my freshman class at Houston Tillerson, and we formed a little steering committee or leadership committee to join with students from University of Texas, Austin, St. Edwards uh, University, which I think is Catholic, to march up and down Main Street trying to open up the theaters and the restaurants and lunch counters at the Greyhound bus station in 1960. And, and all of these demonstrations, you know, from North Carolina, South Carolina, D.C., where we're all the way to Texas, was getting a lot of press, a lot of coverage, you know, with Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy and others. So, but Stuart Udall, as I sort of pieced together, he said, I think that those young people, you know, we're not thinking about women at that time, you know, women sort of came in later. He said, I think some of those young men can represent the president can represent this administration, they can represent themselves well, can represent their college well, and they can represent me well, me being the secretary, because I'm going to make a decision. And what he did, he said, I am going to assign a cadre of recruiters to go into places to recruit where heretofore, interior, at least on any kind of measurable scale, has not recruited before at historically black colleges, and universities primarily throughout the South. And what he instructed his recruiters to do, when you go to these colleges, be upfront with the president. Say that, you know, we have not, we been interior has not been on your campus before, recruiting among your student body. So Mr. President or Mrs. Madam President, we want you to recommend out of your student body, 
two or three fellows that you think go into a new environment or an environment where their faces have not been before. And that I, as the Secretary of the Interior, will confirm their selection for this uh, new opportunity. So I've done a little research and Secretary Udall has sort of strategized. Uh, I don't know why he went about selecting the college and universities, but I have a list of the colleges that were the source of recruitment. I have the names of the students who were recruited and I have the uh, park where they were assigned. And what he wanted to do was to have at least two, three, possibly four or five, and there were, I think, five or six in Yellowstone since it was such a vast park. But for Teton, they had three slots, which is five miles south of Yellowstone. And what he wanted to do was to have these new rangers and you know, seasonal rangers and naturalists in highly visible positions so that the visitors coming into the park would say, darn, this is, must be a new day or something. I've been coming in and out of this park for years and I've never seen a black face greeting me at the entrance station. And he did that. And that program continued. But that was really the, the major breakthrough in the 60s to get African-Americans into ranger or naturalist position in many of the larger, larger parks. Now, there were a handful of what they call park guides in the nation's capital. Uh, we had some at uh, Lincoln Memorial, uh, Washington Monument Memorial. But in terms of rangers out in the so-called traditional large western parks, we didn't have it. So that was really the breakthrough in 62. And I would have to give and continue to give homage or credit to Secretary Udall. He was one powerful, very influential one of uh, tremendous humility and humanity. And when President Kennedy was assassinated, unfortunately, in my home state of Texas, you know, President Johnson obviously had the option of changing his cabinet. And I think he had some concerns about those whom President Kennedy had appointed. But Secretary Udall and First Lady Lady Bird Johnson, a true conservationist in her own right, developed a great relationship. And I pieced it together that she had some influence in having Secretary Udall stay. And he stayed for eight years. And when he passed, he didn't return to Arizona. He, he decided to take a home in New Mexico. But when he passed, through the leadership of the New Mexico congressional delegation, they pieced together a bill that was co-sponsored both by the Democrats and the Republicans unanimously passed the uh, Congress a law, a bill signed into law by President Obama designating the Department of Interior building. And so when you go visit with the director of the uh, Park Service or the Secretary of the Interior, you will go to the Stuart Lee Udall Department of Interior building. That just gives you some type of reverence for his leadership. Robert Stanton was among the first class of black national park rangers recruited by the great Stuart Udall. Now this is an excellent example of a leader who achieved sweeping social change through direct action. Though the ranks of the National Park Service were technically open for equitable employment, finding, recruiting, and retaining black job applicants would require the explicit efforts of the federal agency's leadership from the very top. We were still very much segregated in the 60s and in 63, when I graduated, 
you know, what was primarily still open if I opt to stay in the South were sort of the traditional position. There were some position in the private sector and some in the public sector. And most of the uh, my classmates, you know, went into the traditional role of, and perhaps one of the most noble of all the profession was teaching. And so that was sort of the, the main track that most people pursued. But here's, here's what happened. In 62, see, the Park Service had nothing to say about whether or not they're going to have black rangers. The Secretary of the Interior said, I'm going to recruit for you because you've had years and years to recruit and you didn't park service. So some of the black folks, some of my counterparts were um, accommodated, tolerated, or what have you, because they knew that that the people in the park service knew that they were there because the secretary said, this is a new day. But I I would have to tell you, and I share this widely, I've been associated with the park directly and directly for 58 years now, going back to 62. I could not have, ex- could not have experienced a better park than Grand Teton in 1962. Although there was a few bumps on the road in terms of accommodation outside of the park. And obviously, as anyone, you'd be awed (laughs) with the beauty of the snow-capped mountains year-round, the beauty of Jackson Lake, Jenny Lakes, and and the wildlife, and the uh, tall pine trees, et cetera, et cetera. But in the final analysis, it was the the professionalism of the park staff to give you some idea of, of this quality. My assistant chief ranger eventually became an associate for park management operation, which in the hierarchy of the park service, organizationally speaking, is considered number three. My superintendent at that time in 62 became the number two for the park service, the deputy director under the legendary director, George B. Hartsog, Jr. My chief ranger in 62 eventually became a director of the National Park Service, Russell E. Dickinson. So that was the caliber, the quality. And I tell you, they mentored me gave me all kinds of support and what have you. So I spent uh, two summers in Grand Teton, the summer followed my junior year. And then when I graduated in 63, I came back to work seasonally because I didn't have a job lined up. And while I was there in 62, I got a call from my college president, Dr. J.J. Seabrook. God bless him, he passed some years ago. He said, Bob, I'd like to support a year of study for you on the condition that you'll come back to Yalva Mater and serve on my staff. That that blew me away. And I, <laughs> I thought he was going to call me to take back my degree or something. You know, that, that floored me. So I spent a year at Boston University doing some graduate work, returned to my alma mater, served there two years. And then I conferred with some people I had worked with in Teton because uh, when I was at my alma mater, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64. So the people said, Bob, you know, things are really beginning to uh, open up in the federal government. And uh, we know that you had a good experience. Or we think you had a good experience in Teton and you 
you may want to look at the National Park Service for career employment. I applied for permanent employment in 1966, and the rest is history. I stayed with the Park Service until I stepped down on January 19th. 2001 as the 15th director of the Park Service. These formative years at Grand Teton National Park were critical to Stanton's career. It was through his work as a ranger, while still a college student, that he came to the attention of George B. Hartsock, who, as director of the National Park Service years later, would appoint Stanton as superintendent of all the monuments and historic sites east of the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. This assignment put an end to the decades-long prohibition of placing non-white personnel in positions of authority. Stanton was the first black superintendent of a national park site since Captain Charles Young, a fellow member of Omega Psi Phi fraternity, was the administrator of a Northern California park at the turn of the century. My fraternity brother was appointed the uh, acting superintendent of Sequoia in 1903. 1903, 13 years before there was a National Park Service. And then the Park Service come on the scene, August 25, 1916, the bill signed to law by President Woodrow Wilson. The Park Service did not make any movement towards uh, diversifying its staff, particularly in terms of technical and professional position primarily continue to hire, you know, certainly within uh, the labor force. I mean, the, uh, yeah, in the labor force with respect to uh, maintenance and facility improvements and what have you, but certainly not in terms of a superintendent or chief ranger. So again, fast forward with President Kennedy coming in and now having this new courageous secretary and this, and, and when Secretary Udall came in, he retained President Eisenhower's director of the Park Service, Conrad Worth, his nickname was Connie, Conrad Worth. President Kennedy and Secretary Udall retained Connie for, I think, two years into the, no, almost, yeah, three years into the, uh, into the Kennedy administration. And in 1964, Secretary Udall appointed George B. Hartsog, Jr., as the director of the Park Service. And in 1970, George B. Hartsaw Jr. looked at the uh, faces of superintendents of parks from American Samoa to Maine, from Alaska to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and did not see one, one African-American, or if you will, one Negro superintendent. And George said, I'm gonna change that. And what was so interesting, he made the decision when my former superintendent of Grand Teton, Spud Bill, was his deputy, and my former chief ranger, Russell Dickerson, was then regional director for the National Capital Region, and I was a park management assistant in one of the parks in the region. And I received a call from my regional director, Russell Dickerson. He said, Bob, Director Hartsog and I and others have been conferring and Director Harsa will be appointing you as the superintendent of National Capital Parks East. And that is a conglomerate of uh, various historic sites, monuments, memorial, parklands, East Washington, D.C., and in two counties in Maryland, Charles County and Prince George's County. But within that portfolio was the 
is the home of my all-time hero, uh, Mr. Frederick Douglass. And just a little side note, I often said that Mr. Douglas and I met the Park Service in the same year. When I said that, people said, Stanton, I know you're old, but I know you're that damn old. <laughs> I first donned that green and gray, June 1962 in Grand Teton, September 5, 1962, President Kennedy signed bill into law, designated or authorizing the Douglas home as a unit of the National Park System. Throughout his time at the National Park Service, Stanton has made it his mission to share a complete interpretation of our history. He perhaps knows better than most the importance of preserving the legacy of those we might otherwise forget. Stanton also realizes the value of community engagement that encourages the participation of those to whom historic figures like Frederick Douglass and others have great meaning. Since I'm old, the only thing I can do is re recall days of old. But anyway, in my memoirs, I'm going to give a lot of attributes to the ladies who really preserved Mr. Douglas' home from the time that he died in 1895. They worked, and a lot of the organizations were not there for them. They raised money themselves. So when the home came into the jurisdiction of the National Park Service, it, it required a heck of a lot of work because once the federal government had ownership, there were certain safety codes, electrical codes, what have you, if you were to accommodate the public and if you wanted to preserve the historic integrity, you know, just things you had to do. So the home was closed. Shortly after Park Service took possession of it because of these conditions and because of the limited appropriation that almost immediately came after that, I mean, it was just $25,000, nothing they could really do with it other than do some structural studies and that kind of thing. Director Hartzell, to his credit, I have a copy of his testimony before Congress. I mean, he made a beautiful plea that resulted in Congress in 1969 or 70, I think 70, 70 or either early 71, appropriated $425,000 for the initial restoration of rehabilitation of home. So here I come in in August of 1970, and one of my first major ceremonial activities was joined there on the Douglas grounds before the home that was all shored up within a new Secretary of Interior, Roger C.B. Morton, appointed by President Nixon, along with Pearl Bailey, whom President Nixon had designated as the Ambassador of Love, and Dr. Jimmy Jones, who was a special assistant to uh, the Mayor of Washington, D.C. at that time. Mayor Walter Washington, to announce, to publicly announce, that Congress had made this appropriation. It was during Stanton's long career that the National Park Service finally began to more thoroughly recognize and acknowledge the contribution of Black Americans to our nation's history. With the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he was on hand to be part of a new movement to celebrate Black history through a vast network of national parks, monuments, historic sites, and battlefields. When I first became an employee of the Park Service, there were only two areas in the park system that spoke specifically to the leadership of African-Americans or an African-American was uh, George Washington Carver in Missouri, Booker T. Washington, Virginia. And in 1960, 1960, Congress authorized the National Council of Negro Women 
to construct a memorial to Dr. Mary McCobb Bethune on uh, public land or park land in D.C. because it was uh, to be a, a non-federal undertaking under the leadership of Dr. Hyde and other women at the National Council. And during the midst of using all the resources they have in terms of helping people get out of jail and what have you, Dr. Hyde did not take her eye off the prize. It took from 1960, I think the legislation had to be amended two or three times to extend the life, the timeline for them to actually have it constructed and dedicated. So it was dedicated in 1974. So in between 1960 and 74, we did have, you know, Frederick Douglass to come online. But when I came into the Park Service, there was minimum, minimum recognition of what blacks had done in terms of developing this country and certainly not going back pre-slavery. And we still have a long way to go to go back and really capture the richness of our struggles and our contributions. No question about that. In the years since Robert Stanton was appointed as the first Black American Director of the National Park Service by Bill Clinton in 1997, historic sites and monuments have been created across the country to celebrate Black history. During the administration of President Barack Obama alone, sites have been established to honor the memory of Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, the Reconstruction Era, the Civil Rights Movement, Fort Monroe and the events of 1619, the Freedom Riders, the Pullman Porters, and of course, Charles Young. It is through these monuments, managed by the National Park Service, that we can preserve these great moments of our history, not just as relics of the past, but like the legacy of Robert Stanton, they stand as a vivid expression of our living memory. For The Joy Trip Project, this is James Edward Mills. Our music in this episode comes courtesy of Artlist. This edition of the Joycha Project was made possible thanks to the support of the National Geographic Society. You can follow along on this and other journeys through history at joychaproject.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop me a note in the comments, or better still, write a review on one of our many streaming platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me by email with your constructive questions, comments, and criticisms at info at For now, go be joyful. And until next time, take care.